Blog Talk Radio.
This is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Uh, today is Sunday, July 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to welcome all of our listeners once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the continuing unrest in the South Asian state of Sri Lanka, where the president has fled the country and announced he will resign. The party of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, who was assassinated two days ago, has won the national elections in Japan. We'll have details on that as well. South African authorities are investigating two mass shootings, uh, which took place overnight. And uh, Ivory Coast in West Africa is cleaning up after devastating floods uh, in that country. In the second hour, we look in depth at the security and political situation in Sri Lanka. We also have additional coverage uh, on the return of the remains of former Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba from Belgium. Uh, finally, we look back at the role of Angola in the struggle for the total liberation of Southern Africa in light of the recent transition of the former president, Jose Eduardo Dos Santos. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude with Dr. Nico Cassandra of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's listen in. Mbula esili Bonane mpe koki Sanko zomine mipele Nakanga kimo dema Nabanda kina kukufa Sanko zomine mipele Nazale kise kozela Bonne 
petite Deliciana Likamboka ni mama Nayoka ki pena sango Gayuwa yo Natikala Senama banzo
Nazali mwanana yo Nakati ya mukili oyo ya kitasa Bana okende amama na bana kokondo na basushi Motena selikolo na kobanda Na sala nege nini na mukili Lokola nazali jose ya mubali Na sege feo batelanga Pena chance ya mosala Bye, 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 okay, 
a day after protesters stormed the homes of both the president and prime minister, forcing the country's leadership to say that they would step down. Shivendra Silva, Sri Lanka's chief of defense staff uh, earlier today, called for a peaceful resolution to the crisis in which tens of thousands of people who were angered uh, by rising prices and shortages of essential goods converged on the capital of Colombo on Saturday. Uh, the United States also called on the ruling elite to resolve the crisis quickly, and the U- European Union called for a peaceful, democratic, and orderly transition. On Saturday, protesters entered the official residence of President Rotabaya Rashapatska amid chants of Gotta Go Home. In chaotic scenes captured on film and video, protesters were seen storming into the white colonial-era residence then cooking and showering in its rooms, lounging on furniture and beds, and splashing in its pools. Protesters broke into the private house of the Prime Minister, Ranil Rikray May Singe, and set it ablaze. Rajapatska, part of a political family that Sri Lanka's blamed for the worst economic crisis in decades, was not at home. His whereabouts remain unknown a day later. Sri Lanka's parliamentary speaker said, the president would resign on July the 13th. The president's brother, Mahinda Rajapaksa, resigned as prime minister in May as the economic crisis came to a head. Earlier today, the president's office released a statement saying that three ships carrying supplies of cooking gas were making their way to Sri Lanka and that distribution of the commodity, which has been an acutely short supply, would resume normally from Tuesday. Sri Lanka's economic collapse is emerging as one of the starkest examples yet of the pressure emerging market countries are buckling under as COVID-19 pandemic and surging food and fuel prices hamper their ability to secure essential goods and service their debt. International Monetary Fund, which is negotiating a multi-billion dollar rescue package with Sri Lanka, said earlier today that it was closing closely monitoring the situation and planned on con- to continue technical discussions with the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank in Sri Lanka. In other news in Asia, the fatal shooting of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan remained fresh on the Japanese people's minds as they headed to the polls earlier today for the House of Consular's election, but it appeared to have no significant impact on voter turnout. Abe's death uh, at a campaign event generated enormous focus on the triennial election, putting politics front of mind for the voting public, while averting attention from key issues such as cost of living pressures. According to a Kyoto News estimate, however, the turnout rate stood at only 52%. As of 1 a.m., figure is just 3.2% points higher than the second lowest turnout of 48.8% recorded uh, just three years ago in 2019. On Sunday, earlier today, many people journeyed to pay their respects at the area in the western city of Nada, near where Abe's assassination took place, with mourners lining up to leave flowers. Mr. Abe was a politician who worked hard for Japan. It's regrettable, said Akihiro Yurimoto, a 43-year-old from Osaka who came with his family to place flowers. 
Abe, Japan's longest-serving prime minister, was shot by a long gunman while on a campaign trail in Nara two days before the upper house election, sending shockwaves through uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, of which he was a longtime leader, the business and political community, as well as the public. And you can read this article in its entirety at uh, the Pan-African Newswire. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news taking place on the African continent, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has expressed his condolences following the deaths of at least 19 people who died in tavern shootings in Soweto and in Petersburg this weekend. In the first shooting uh, last night, four people were killed and eight wounded in Petersburg after two suspects fired at customers. Meanwhile, in the southwest township, Soweto, at least 15 people were shot dead at a tavern near Nomzamo informal settlement in the early hours of this morning. It's understood gunmen armed with rifles and pistols opened fire at the patrons. In both shooting, suspects are still at large. Ramaphosa has called on law enforcement authorities to bring those responsible to book. The president urges security agencies and community members to work together to urgently bring the perpetrators of the two attacks to book. As a nation, we cannot allow violent criminals to terrorize us in this way, regardless of where such incidents may occur, said uh, the president in a statement. At the same time, the national liquor traders and urging police to root out criminality in townships following fears that taverns are being targeted. And finally, in the West African state of Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivorian capital, uh, one person in five lives in flood-prone areas. It is not just climate change to blame. That's according to an article uh, with Ma Kamara saying that in Abidjan, people build in risky areas such as wetlands. Pipes are blocked and channels are used as dumping grounds, leaving even the slightest downpours to turn into flash floods. The city was built with concrete and bitumen. The water struggles to drain through, said Yao Kanan, an urban planner. The city lacks proper drainage infrastructure by the rains, have also become heavier in recent years, a phenomenon attributed to climate change. Road construction without proper drainage planning has been blamed for flooding neighborhoods in the capital of Abidjan. In June, 19 people lost their lives and five were injured. Forecasters say the coming days look less grim. The months of June and July are the wettest in the south of Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, with heavy rainfall. The Africa Cup of Nations, which had been scheduled for June of 2023, had been moved to January of 2024. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And in concluding uh, this uh, segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source 
on Pan-African and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network so you can have access to uh, today's program uh, for Sunday, July 10th, uh, 2022, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links and the emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The programs can also be shared by copying and pasting the links on the blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. One would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect? Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin People Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And love for our nation would make a better society Now some of us Would rather cuss And make a fuss Than to bring about A little trust But we shall overcome I believe someday If you'll only listen To what I have to say And how long have you had Your white teacher Your black preachers Can you respect Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin I say now people Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? And if you had a choice 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program. Uh, that was the Impressions uh, from Chicago, Illinois, uh, with the tune-in title, Choice of Colors. And uh, as we talked about last week, the returns of the remains of the Congolese uh, first prime minister, uh, Patrice Lumumba, and of course the internment of uh, the remains of Patrice Lumumba uh, just uh, last week uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're going to bring you uh, more analysis on the situation uh, related to the legacy of Belgian colonialism and imperialism in uh, Central Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as other countries. And, of course, uh, we are going to bring you this uh, with uh, the grandson of Patrice Lumumba, who is featured in this report. Let's listen in. In a recent visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo, Belgium's King Philippe admitted that his country's rule over the Congo was unjustifiable and racist. But the king stopped short of offering an apology. Belgium's colonial reign over the Congo was characterized by economic exploitation, torture and millions of deaths. The Belgian-backed murder of Congolese independence hero Patrice Lumumba exacerbated colonial atrocities. Brussels is now coming to terms with its dark past in the DRC, which still reels from decades of misrule. So what is Belgium's legacy in the DRC? And moving forward, what does the future hold for DRC and its relations with Belgium? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, the gruesome murder of Congo's independence Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba in January of 1961 set the DRC on a decades-long era of dictatorship, civil war and economic plunder. It would be revealed years later that Lumumba's death was sanctioned by former colonial power Belgium, aided by the U.S. government. The independence hero's remains were repatriated to the DRC in June of this year and laid to rest in Kinshasa a ceremony that coincided with the country's Independence Day celebrations. Christo Chamringa filed this report. A grand funeral for the DRC's national hero, Patrice Emery Lumumba, more than 60 years in the making. Hundreds of people gathered at the Echanger Square in Kinshasa to pay tribute to the country's first prime minister. The event was attended by the president of Congo Brazzaville, Denis Sassongueso, diplomats and senior Congolese officials. La présente cérémonie. This ceremony of laying the remains of our national hero that I am presiding over today is not just an ordinary ritual. It is an event meant to awaken our collective memory about Patrice Lumumba's contribution to our country. It's also an affirmation 
of our ability to make our nation great. Patrice Lumumba was killed by firing squad in January 1961 by rebels backed by Belgian mercenaries. He was a leading voice in his country's liberation struggle. In our country, people with the character of Lumumba are very rare. I don't think they have even been born yet. That's why we keep saying Congo is Lumumba's nation. It's thanks to him that we got independence. Lumumba's body is reported to have been cut into pieces and dissolved in acid. His tooth is believed to be all that's left. It was recently handed back to his family by Belgium. The return of Lumumba's remains has been hailed as the start of reconciliation between Belgium and the DRC. Belgium's colonial rule in the DRC was brutal. Historians estimate that 10 million people were killed during the reign of King Leopold II. Now that his remains have been brought back home, the ancestral spirits are happy. That will open lots of opportunities for the country. But we should find ways of improving our trade relations with Belgium. The funeral was held on the DRC's 62nd independence anniversary. The remains of Patrice Lumumba have finally been laid to rest in this mausoleum 61 years after his assassination. His burial has brought joy to many Congolese who have been demanding the return of his relic from Belgium for a dignified burial back home. Christopher Chamringa, CGTN, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, let's bring in our guests now from Kinshasa. Joining us via Zoom, Amory Kalema Patrice Lumumba, a conflict transformation professional specializing in human rights and transitional justice. He's also the grandson to the late Prime Minister of the DRC, Patrice Lumumba. Professor Philip Clark is joining us from London. He's a professor of international politics at SOAS University of London, where he's also the co-director at the Center on Conflict, Rights and Justice. Dr. Kandala Lupuana is joining the conversation from Johannesburg. He's a lecturer and PhD researcher on public international law at the University of Johannesburg. Gentlemen, thank you all for being on the program today and being a part of this discussion. Emory, if I may start off with you, Patrice Lumumba too the only remains of the former Congolese Prime Minister, assassinated in 1961, was returned to his family on June the 20th for burial in the DRC. How do you, as a grandson of the late Lumumba, and your larger family feel about this moment? Well, right now we are feeling great. A lot of different emotions going on right now. Uh, to see such a figure um, coming back to his country after all this time, so as a family, I can say that we have emotional closure, which is different than justice closure. Um, that's another discussion. But since your question was about the family, we are relieved um, as a family because what needs to be done when someone passed away, uh, we have customs, we have rights, we have different types of things that allow the spirit to, to, to stop wandering and to go peacefully. In, his, um, uh, in Sankuhu, which is his region of birth, you right. still have women dressing in black because for 61 years they haven't seen the body. They, wasn't, they, they weren't able to, to bury um, their grandfather, their, their right. national hero properly. This means a lot.
So you talk about this being an emotional closure, but not um, a closure for justice. How do you see the pursuit of justice, though, for the mother of your grandfather? How will that continue? So um, there is a um, trial going on right now. So now the, the, the process is a bit long, I must say. Um, out of the 11 people that were accused, nine have passed away. So we are kind of running out of time, um, but we are for us. It's very, very important that justice uh, should be served because this is the basis of what could be a new and appeased relationship between Belgium and the Congo. Everybody wants that, but um, memory is very important uh, for conflict countries in transitional justice. So. Uh, we are certainly hoping that the justice and that the judicial system will take that as seriously as it is and make sure that justice will be served before these two persons pass. Uh, Patrice Mehilumba is embraced largely by the youth, uh, which is tired of seeing the fights between uh, tribes and the fights between political parties. At the end of the day, he was a young man fighting for young people, and he passed away at, at 36, which was very young. So all these people feel represented by him, and that's something that you can really feel in the country. All right. Uh, Professor Clark, now, you know, I want to hear about the sentiment coming out um, of Europe, particularly from Belgium, because the timing of this return is one of those areas in focus. Why this reckoning now on the part of Belgium to return Lumumba's remains six decades since his assassination? I think what Belgium is doing is part of a, a bigger reckoning of European colonial powers are trying to come to terms with their colonial past. That we've seen Germany uh, providing reparations uh, in Namibia. Uh, there's a whole discussion in the UK at the moment about the legacy of, of British colonialism. The Belgians, I guess, are trying to catch this zeitgeist um, and, and, and start to deal with their own past. The more immediate event, of course, is the recent visit by uh, Belgian King Philippe uh, to the DRC, where uh, he was asked numerous difficult questions about Belgian colonialism, and he used, I think, a lot of very vague language to basically avoid real accountability there. So this is part, I think, of a piecemeal Belgian attempt uh, to deal with the past. But I think, as, as Anne-Marie has already suggested, that there's much further that Belgium really has to go if it wants to have an honest and full reckoning with the legacies of colonialism, the assassination of Lumumba, and, and the way that that disrupted uh, uh, Congolese uh, independence. These are all issues that I don't think Belgium has yet fully come to terms with. But Belgium hasn't uh, quite uh, apologized, though, for uh, the atrocities that happened uh, in the DRC all those years ago. Why is it so difficult to, to get an apology out of them? It was one of the really startling aspects of King Philippe's uh, recent visit to Congo. It was his inability to say sorry, that, that he expressed uh, all forms of vague remorse, but, but was entirely uh, reluctant to use that particular word. I, I think this shows something very deep in Belgian culture, a, a real lack of willingness to categorically deal with the legacies of colonialism. This is something I think that the Belgian political and cultural elite hopes will simply go away, that if they can return some artefacts, if there can be a visit of uh, the king to Congo, that perhaps that will satiate uh, the Congolese population. Uh, I think what Amari has said and what we've seen 
so many Congolese talk about in the last few weeks is that that simply isn't enough, that uh, the time is ripe now for, for Belgium to really come to terms with what happened during colonialism, the enormous damage that was done, the murder, uh, the, the pillage, the theft of natural resources, all of which benefit, uh, benefited uh, the, the Belgian elite at the time, and that Belgian society continues uh, to benefit from uh, today. And until there is a, an honest reckoning and a desire for, for true reparations right. in light of all of that, I, I think it will leave a very sour taste in, in the mouth of, of many Congolese people. Dr. Kandala, what's your view here, uh, particularly, you know, on King Philip's visit to uh, the, the Congo in early June? He expressed his regrets for Belgium's uh, abuses in the Congo. He called them unjustifiable and racist. But no apology was forthcoming. I mean, what would a formal apology mean here? I, I am not surprised with uh, the, the attitude of the Belgium and the word used and I might say carefully used by the king of Belgium because they've remained stubborn in the recognition of the atrocities, many atrocities that have been committed in the DRC. This includes crimes against humanity, genocide, name it, you know, all these international crimes, most of them have been committed during, you know, uh, the Belgium uh, period. So they have remained stubborn in the recognition of the, the crimes committed in the DRC. You will recall that in 2002, the Parliamentarian Committee just uh, adopted a theory of moral responsibility, which is an, just an opposition to legal responsibility. So choosing the word regret instead of apology, it means a lot. It is actually in line right. with the policy that they have toward, you know, their, the, the DRC. Because an apology will mean an accountability, which, you know, the Belgian government will take responsibility, legal responsibility for the crime committed in the DRC and which in a case whether it will go for retributive justice or restorative justice and when it is and in, in, this is you know might happen anyway right. if they, they offer a restorative justice then an apology will mean that an recognition, official recognition of the atrocity committed in the DRC. Professor Clark, I, I, I want to feel, get a feeling of what this moral responsibility though would entail. One, because until two years ago, you know, statues of the Belgian King Leopold II stood in the streets of Brussels. This is a man whose rule in the Congo saw 10 million deaths, either by starvation, torture, execution, and disease in the DRC. This makes one wonder how the account of colonization has been etched in the Belgian uh, society here. What, what is their feeling about their role in the DRC? I think until very recently, the dominant view in Belgium was to lionize Leopold, to really glorify the colonial period. Uh, the statues of Leopold were everywhere. The Central African Museum on the outskirts of Brussels really glorified the colonial past. It's 
only in the last few years that there's begun to be a bit of a change in the Belgian mentality. We've seen the refurbishment of that museum. It, it has a much more critical message about colonialism now. Uh, there is, of course, a commission of inquiry in Brussels that is wrapping up its work, looking at the colonial period. But this is a very late development. Uh, I've really, for the best part of the last 60 or 70 years, the, the Belgian story has been one of denial. Dr. Kandala, where does this leave us, though, when we talk about uh, reparations? Um, what is the path to follow if we are to look at reparations for, you know, a country like DRC? Well, um, reparation is, um, can only, you know, be uh, granted or happen when there is a prosecution. And uh, generally in any human rights violation, even in ordinary crime, there is three basic rights for any victim. The first one is the right to know what happened, who did it, why it happened, and who did it. So the second one will be justice, where the, 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 the criminal is brought to, 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 to trial and sentence, get the appropriate sentence. And the last one, then we can talk about remedies. Those are three basic rights that any victim of a human rights violation has. So here we're talking about crimes against humanity, uh, genocide, these are the crimes. And the killing of Lumuma, or the same pattern that has been used to kill Lumuma, right. is the same pattern that is used to control the DRC up to now. The DRC since then have remained the most is unstable state. And this is attributed to the, 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 to, to the colonial power. They are influenced and what would they, they, they are influenced in the DRC and uh, on any other you know, uh, institution that is in the DRC. So when we're talking about reparation or remedies, right. it takes so many, many forms. It can be restitution, it can be compensation, and it can take any other form as also apology. So this is why we're saying that my personal view is that even now Belgium has remained, as I always put it, stubborn in the recognition of the atrocity committed in the DRC. And this game is only playing in the Africa because the colonial powers, they know that Africa does not have military power. All right, and we are going to we are going to look at uh, the impact of that colonial heritage on the DRC when we come back after the break. We'll take a short break now, but do stay tuned. Talk Africa continues in a moment. Welcome back to Talk Africa. I'm Marie Kalema Lumumba, Phil Clark and Kandala Lupuana 
Athil, my guest, standing by. Let's continue with this discussion now. Amory, you know, Belgium's and the U.S.'s role in the murder of Patrice Lumumba set the DRC on a path of decades of dictatorship, internal conflict, economic plunder. We've heard from Dr. Kandala, you know, about the impact of that colonial heritage on what is the DRC today. How much of that has affected and made the DRC what it is today? Oh, well, that's, that's, that's tremendous, pretty much at every level. If we talk about um, corruption, uh, if we talk about uh, education limitation, the, in, in Congo it was one of the only colony where people weren't allowed to pursue their studies after high school. Which uh, and when we reached independence, it was very difficult for us to have people uh, with an, enough education to, to to run the country. And that's something that we can, that's a path that we can clearly see up to now. Um, the assassination of Patrice Emile Mumba said, have paved the way for impunity. And this is, and, and we see impunity throughout the history of the Congo, uh, which lead people to believe that whether they can do whatever they want uh, in Congo. We can also talk about the role of multinational during the colonial time and the role that multinationals have now. Uh, nowadays, we talk about corporate social responsibility. Right. And I think that in the beginning of two, 2021, um, uh, the European Union has adopted a new European rule in regards to the importation of uh, minerals, which goes in the right direction. But unfortunately, uh, this is not, they, they don't have, um, they didn't uh, incorporate elements that would allow um, some courts to force these companies uh, to do as they uh, recommend as they recommend them to, to to act. Right. So DRC is still paying that uh, big price. Dr. Kandala, do you think though that Belgium should be more proactive in stabilizing the DRC's restive regions or in social welfare of the DRC? In the words of Amory there. Of course, Belgium has a big responsibility, you know, to, uh, in the DRC and then in the eastern part because, as I put it clearly, when we look at the pattern uh, followed to kill uh, the first elected prime minister of the DRC, Mumma, is the same pattern that they are using right now for, uh, to control the mineral resources and to control the DRC. If the DRC is counted among the, the most insecure country or unstable country, it is part of that control that has been instituted or uh, installed by the pattern. So this is what we're saying, that because of that foundation by Belgium, which is followed, the DRC today is, is also among the country where there is a kind of a crisis of leadership. Right. And this is taken from what happened in 1960 after the independence, the killing of the first elected. So until such a time that the Belgium will play a proactive role in the, the, in the DRC, in the, in the sense that, you know, allow the people to elect 
And I am also not part or I'm not a part, partisan of uh, election because no such a person like Lumumba will come again through the ballot paper. Right. It is only by year. All right. So let me get your view here, uh, Professor Clark, because we're now looking 60 years on. And the question, of course, here is, should we still be pinpointing blame on the Belgian colonial rulers for what is happening in the country's uh, politics today? Many are wondering, despite being extremely mineral rich, why has it been difficult for DRC to chart its own path to stability and prosperity? I mean, the reason that Lumumba was assassinated was that the Western powers saw him as too powerful and, and too independent. The Belgium, the US, the other major powers of the day showed their intentions very clearly at the time of Lumumba's assassination, which is they would not tolerate a, a, a Congolese leader who had a, an independent nationalist vision for what Congo could become. And, and that is a pattern of behaviour that outside actors have continued right up until the present. And of course, it's true that this is at least partly uh, an issue around Congolese leadership. But this is also a country that has consistently had to deal with the meddling of outside powers, uh, Western powers interfering in the governance of the DRC, uh, meddling in the economy, particularly of the eastern part of the country. This is a country that has never had an opportunity to completely run its political and economic affairs independently. And so that, that begins with colonialism through the early years of decolonization right up until the present. There's a very consistent story here. This is partly about Belgium, but it's about all sorts of other Western powers uh, as well that have tried to fill their pockets um, off the back of, of Congolese wealth. And that, I think, is the tragedy of Congo, that this is a country that in many ways never had the opportunity that many other countries around the world have had, which is to determine their own affairs uh, for the betterment of their own people. They've always been dealing with this international interference right up until today. Well, Amory, you know, Prime Minister Lumumba, you know, he was largely seen as the embodiment of uh, a peaceful and self-determined future uh, as well, Professor Clark has put it. If Lumumba were here today, what course do you think he would want to see the DRC take? Mm, uh, pardon me, I just want uh, briefly to come back on the previous um, question, just to say that, of course, there is um, responsibility for um, solidarity, but this relationship cannot be a child-parent uh, relationship. Uh, so I just wanted to, to, to stress that any help is accepted, as long as respect of our sovereignty is uh, observed. Um, on, on, on your question, uh, I think that uh, I, I have difficulties to talk in the name of my, I, of my grandfather, but he had a program, he has a legacy. When we are talking about him, it's not only nostalgia. He has a whole ideology. And um, the, the, the main thing was about this cleavage between him and Kazavubu at the time, uh, he wanted a national state where, where, while Kazavubu, who ended up being president uh, when he was prime minister, wanted a federal uh, state. And his idea of nationalism was based on his disbelief of tribalism. So I think that he, his first uh, mission, if he was still with us right now, would be to make sure that the country is as united as possible. My, my dad, François-Emery Tolenga Lumumba, said it earlier when we were at uh, the, cer the ceremony. He said that the, the, the word should be, the anthem should be unity, 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 because we cannot afford, with such a big country, 
which represent four or five times the size of France, we cannot we cannot tolerate tribalism. So I think that would be his very first uh, mission and challenge. Professor Clark, coming to you on that point, though, you know, as the first Prime Minister of Independent Congo, how different do you think the DRC would have been today if Lumumba were alive? I think the country would have been unimaginably different. And I think this is why the legacy of Lumumba lasts so powerfully in the DRC today. There's this real sense of what the independent Congo could have been. And I think Dr. Kandala said it as well, that that wasn't just about Congo. Lumumba's legacy was about the continent as a whole. He was a real beacon of, of independent thought, of independent action, of, of African states taking control of their own affairs, uh, capturing their own resources and using those for the benefit of, of their populations. That, that is really the symbolic importance of Lumumba's assassination and, and why the return of his tooth to DRC and, and, and the ceremonies that Amory and his family have been involved in are, are so important. Because it's about, I think, a population that wants to recapture that spirit of Lumumba, wants to recapture that idea that Congo should be in charge of its own affairs, uh, that, that, it, that it should have a truly nationalist vision that is about benefiting the entire uh, population of Congo and not just a segment of it. Um, and, and that, I think, is really the, why this, this return of, of Lumumba's remains is, it, it can, is such a powerful moment, not just in Congo, but, but right across Africa as a whole. All right, uh, Professor Clark, Amari Lumumba uh, and Dr. Kandala, thank you all for joining us on the program. And that's it for this week on Talk Africa. Thank you to our guests for their insightful commentary on this subject. Amari Kulema, Patrice Lumumba in Kinshasa, a conflict transformation professional specializing in human rights and transitional justice. He's also the grandson to the late Prime Minister of the DRC, Patrice Lumumba. Professor Philip Clark in London, Professor of International Politics at the SOAS University of London, where he's also the co-director at the Center on Conflict, Rights and Justice. And Dr. Kandala Lupuana in Johannesburg, a lecturer and PhD researcher on public international law at the University of Johannesburg. Now remember to keep the conversation going on our social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook, and also catch this and more episodes of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. See you again next time. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Bye-bye. Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe, and uh, that was uh, Africa Talk uh, discussing the return of the remains of the first uh, Congolese Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, uh, who was uh, overthrown uh, just three months into his administration in 1960 in uh, what is known today as the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, he was then, of course, held under house arrest after he escaped. Uh, he was kidnapped at the aegis uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency and the Belgian colonial powers, which were still inside the country, uh, taken to at least two uh, locations, Stiesville and later Elizabethville, where he was brutally executed along with uh, two of his comrades, uh, Impolo and Okito. And, of course, uh, the only remains uh, were a gold tooth from uh, the ordeal on January 17th of 1961. His remains were returned uh, 
for the 62nd anniversary of the Congolese Independence, which was on June 30th. And uh, he was given an honorary burial. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our program for this week. Welcome back. Uh, the music of the flirtations, nothing but a heartache. And uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, July 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And uh, right now we want to move into a, an analysis of what is happening in the South Asian state of Sri Lanka. Uh, where uh, the country has defaulted uh, on a $50 billion foreign uh, debt obligation. Uh, That happened in May. And, of course, there's been unrest in the country due to the escalating prices and shortages, uh, problems that are not just unique to Sri Lanka, but the entire world, including the leading capitalist state, uh, the United States, uh, which is suffering from hyperinflation, supply chain problems, uh, shortages, and, uh, of course, rising rents, 
food prices, transportation costs, etc. Let's listen to uh, this report on the situation in Sri Lanka, where uh, the president and the uh, they would resign uh, yesterday after thousands of people stormed their residence in Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka. Like I told you, our main focus today is Sri Lanka, and violent protests are taking place as we speak outside the presidential residence in Colombo. What many are calling as one of the largest anti-government marches in the crisis-hit island nation this year. The public anger, which was swelling over, the, over time due to the rising prices of essentials and the lack of strong political figures to drive the cash-starved country out of the crisis. Protesters holding Sri Lankan flags broke into the presidential residence. Sri Lankan police fired tear gas at protesters in Colombo to control thousands of people who were gathered outside the residence. Now, thousands of demonstrators parked in buses, trains and trucks from across the South Asian nation entered Colombo to express outrage over the government's failure to protect them from economic ruin. Pictures and videos all over the social media is being circulated where hundreds of protesters can be seen inside the residence, parked into rooms and corridors shouting slogans against Rajapaksa. In the videos also, the protesters can be seen lying on the bed and swimming in the presidential swimming pool. Sources confirmed that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa was removed from the official premises on Friday for his safety ahead of the planned rally over the weekend. Footage circulating on social media also claims that luggage belonging to the president was hurriedly packed into a Sri Lankan Navy ship at the Colombo port. Sri Lanka's Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe summoned an urgent urgent cabinet meeting to discuss a swift resolution to a potential power vacuum after President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled his official residence. Prime Minister Office claims that President Rajapaksa told Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe that he will respect any decision taken at party's leaders uh, meeting. Wickremesinghe, who is next in line of succession if Rajapaksa resigns, invited political party leaders to join the meeting and also asked for Parliament to be convened urgently to discuss the crisis. His office says in a statement, now at least 21 people including police personnel have been injured in the clash between the police and the protesters and some were hospitalized following the ongoing protest. Again, this is um, the latest development from Sri Lanka. The protests have taken a violent twist as we speak because protesters and demonstrators have stormed the presidential secretariat office and the president is reportedly fled the palace. Many are calling one of the many are calling this protest one of the largest anti-government marches in the crisis-hit island nation this year. The public anger, which was swelling over time. Due to the rising prices of essentials and the lack of strong political figure to drive the cash-starved country out of the crisis, protesters holding Sri Lankan flags broke into the presidential residence. Sri Lankan police fired tear gas into the air to disperse the protesters and also control the thousands of people who had gathered outside the residence. We do not know the whereabouts of the president but we are made aware that he did speak to the Prime Minister. 
Wickremesinghe and told him that he will respect any decision that will be taken during the party's meeting which will be held shortly. Now thousands of demonstrators parked in buses, trains and trucks across the South Asian nation entered Colombo to express outrage over the government's failure to protect them from economic ruin. Pictures and videos have been circulating on social media for the better part of today where hundreds of protesters can be seen inside the residence packed into rooms and corridors shouting slogans against President Wajapaksa. Also in the videos, protesters can be seen lying on the bed. We are also told that they raided the kitchen and took a dip in the presidential palace's swimming pool. These are the images and the footage from the inside the presidential uh, palace. As you can see, this is the bedroom where protesters confiscated everything that was in the drawers, in the cupboards. And again, this is the swimming pool. Like I mentioned before, they took a dip in the presidential palace's swimming pool in complete disregard of the security officers who are one floor above them, as you can see from the video on your screen. The president fled the presidential palace once the protesters had gained momentum and had gained or had increased in numbers. Anger has been growing over the e economic turmoil in the country and this anger has now boiled over. Sources confirmed that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa was removed from the official premises on Friday for his safety ahead of the planned rally over the weekend. Footage circulated on social media claims that luggage belonging to the president was hurriedly packed into a Sri Lankan Navy ship at the Colombo port. Sri Lanka's Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe has summoned an urgent cabinet meeting to discuss a swift resolution to a potential power vacuum after President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled his official residence. We are being told that Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's office claims that President Rajapaksa called and told the Prime Minister that she will respect any decision taken at the party leaders' meeting, which will be held shortly. Wickham Masinghe, who is next in line of succession if Rajapaksa resigns, invited political party leaders to join the meeting and also asked for Parliament to be convened urgently to discuss the crisis which has been going on for months now. At least 21 people, including police personnel, have been injured in this latest protest. We have our correspondent, Dasunia Tauda, who is on ground zero, and this is what uh, she sent us earlier.
The public anger in Sri Lanka has boiled over, as you can see on your screens right now. This is in Colombo, which is the capital of Sri Lanka, where angry protesters broke or breached the police barricades and entered the presidential palace or the presidential secretariat. They stormed the swimming pool, stormed the kitchen, stormed the bedroom as the beleaguered president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, fled his official residence in the capital. Now protesters are demanding the leader's resignation even after storming the compound. The island of 22 million people is struggling under a severe foreign exchange shortage that has limited essential imports of fuel, food and medicine, plunging it into the worst financial turmoil in seven decades. So these were earlier scenes in Colombo where protesters and demonstrators, including monks, raided the presidential secretariat, entered into the kitchen, broke all the pictures, as I'm told. They also raided the presidential bedroom and took a dip in the, president, uh, in the presidential swimming pool. We still do not know the whereabouts of the president or the beleaguered president. He was evacuated as soon as the protests grew larger. Well, there are several videos being circulating or have been circulating on social media. Amid reports of Gotabara Japaksa having fled, a video is being massively circulating on social media which allegedly shows luggage belonging to the president being hurriedly packed into a Navy ship, SLNS Gajabahu. This is a video from the Colombo port. Whereabouts of the president are still not known. Now, according to the latest statement from the Prime Minister's office, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa called and told the Prime Minister, Wikremesinghe, that he will respect any decision taken at the party leaders' meeting, which will be held shortly. As the crisis unfolds, we earlier spoke to Dr. Aruna Kulatunga, and this is what he had to say about this.
I hope uh, it will be soon, but um, this, this is a, there's a problem with this whole thing. This is the constitutional situation that is there. Uh, what is happen, what, what is next? He can give up, and what happens next? Uh, th that is an issue that uh, not just himself, but the rest of the cabinet and the prime minister is going to consider uh, in the next few hours. There's a meeting that has been called, all party meeting that has been called, and, and that question will be taken up uh, uh, at this point of time. I, I have to say he has to go. There's no question about it. But uh, how do we do that? What are the constitutional way of doing that? It has been debated many, uh, many weeks now, but there's no clear answer to that. The presidency to the, the next person who's in line, and that is uh, Prime Minister Anil Vikramasinghe. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a lot of pressure coming from his party uh, not to do that, I believe. But more than that, I think he has a sense of, uh, you know, I, I started this, I got to finish this, I'm a military man, I just can't leave like this. That, that sense is also there. Uh, however, I think he's now at a point, the tipping point uh, arrived today. I understand that he has uh, been very uh, seriously told by his colleagues, his friends, it's time to go. It's very difficult to uh, change uh, disasters such as this in two months. So basically what Ronald Vikramasi has done uh, is to, to rebuild the confidence, especially amongst the international uh, community that has been working with us uh, over a period of time, especially the uh, debtors. The, I mean, unfortunately, there was a, uh, the death of or the killing of uh, Prime Minister Abe in uh, Japan. Uh, is going to set us back quite badly because he was one of the people that uh, Prime Minister Ranul Vikramasinghe was in touch with and having a dialogue with in terms of uh, getting the uh, the money coming back uh, to Sri Lanka. Now, having said that, um, we we you know it's it's it's, it's something that is uh, not easy to do within two months, especially when the, the the government machinery is not working. We don't have fuel. We we I mean it's it's so many crises at the same time. So you've got to handle it one at a time. Country different has to be some more time, but it's, it's, on the, it's, it's being worked out. There's no cancellation of that. It's simply that, uh, according to, to uh, the IMF, uh, certain modalities have to be worked out, and that is being worked down, and uh, there is uh, two teams that are negotiating with the IMF experts team, plus the political side from the prime minister side as well. So those modalities are being worked out. The the debt restructuring uh, talks are going on. Uh, uh, there's uh, Clifford Chance and Lassalle who are doing uh, that. That is two international firms that have been um, uh, hired by the government of Sri Lanka to do those uh, negotiations. So those things are happening. But uh, the prime minister was hopeful that Japan will host the Paris Club. The Paris Club is uh, uh, India, Japan, um, and uh, Australia as well. There are a couple of countries that have given us uh, uh, loans, and those countries were to meet uh, to, dis to discuss what, what's next. And that uh, meeting was to happen in Japan. Uh, however, I'm not sure how that is going to happen now with the death of uh, uh, former Prime Minister Abe. But having said that, I think it, uh, IMF is, is definitely coming to, it will take a longer period for this to happen. If you're just joining us and you're wondering what is happening in Sri Lanka and you haven't seen any information on social media, then this is the right channel to be on because I will give you a timeline of the events as they unfolded in Sri Lanka.
Thousands of protesters in Sri Lanka's commercial capital, Colombo, broke through police barricades and stormed the president's official residence on Saturday in one of the largest anti-government marches in the crisis-hit country this year. Some protesters holding Sri Lankan flags and helmets broke into the president's residence and according to a video footage that is being shared on social media, you can see the protesters inside the president's home, bedroom, kitchen and swimming pool. Two defense ministry sources say President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled or was removed from the official premises on Friday for his safety ahead of the planned rally over the weekend. The whereabouts of the president are still not known. Sri Lankan Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe summoned an emergency party leaders meeting after the street unrest. Wickremesinghe also requested a speaker to summon parliament and this is according to a statement from the Prime Minister's office. And to quell the crowds, several gunshots were hard being fired into the air and police unsuccessfully used tear gas to ward off protesters who surrounded the presidential residence, who later broke into the presidential residence, went to the kitchen, went to the bedroom and to the swimming pool. So far it has been reported that 30 people have been wounded including police personnel in the confrontation between police officers and the protesters. They have been taken to hospital as we speak. Also the latest information we are getting is that 16 SLPP members of parliament have written a letter requesting the president to resign immediately and to provide the opportunity for a mature leader. Remember, these protests have been ongoing for months now as the island nation is facing the worst economic crisis, economic crisis since independence. Fuel rationing, lack of food, lack of medicine is driving protesters or is driving Sri Lankans bazaar and angry. Again, let me repeat here that Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe has called an emergency meeting with the participation of party leaders to discuss the current situation and to find an immediate solution. This is according to the Prime Minister's office. And the office also said that uh, the President, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, had actually called and told the Prime Minister that any decision that will be taken in the party meeting, he will respect. And we are expecting that party meeting to be held shortly. Our correspondent Dasunia Sauda has been following this event since yesterday. She sent us this report from Colombo.
You're watching We On Wild Is One and our focus at this hour is Sri Lanka and the unfolding situation in the island nation. Sri Lanka's beleaguered president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, was forced to flee his official residence in the capital today. Protesters demanding the leader's resignation stormed the compound, went into the bedroom, went into the kitchen, and also took a dip in the presidential palace's swimming pool. As of now, we are hearing reports that 30 people have been injured, including three policemen who are now hospitalized. The island nation of 22 million people is struggling under a severe foreign exchange shortage that has limited essential imports of fuel, food and medicine, plunging it into the worst financial turmoil in seven decades. Earlier, protesters confronted security personnel while protesting against the exacerbating economic situation and prevailing unrest in the island nation. Police were forced to use tear gas to disperse the angry crowd. And as it is reported, 30 of the protesters, including the police officers, have been injured in this scuffle and they've been hospitalized. Prime Minister Ramil Wickremesinghe has called for an urgent cabinet meeting and we are told that uh, the President Gotabaya Rajapaksa actually did call the Prime Minister and told him that whatever will be discussed and decided in the party's meeting he will be, he will respect and oblige that. We On is now available in your country. Download the app now and get all the news on the move. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on developments in the South Asian nation of Sri Lanka, uh, where thousands, of course, uh, invaded and took over uh, the presidential residence on yesterday. The country, as we mentioned earlier, had defaulted on $50 billion of external financial obligations that took place in May. And uh, the entire uh, system in Sri Lanka is under threat. But it's not just Sri Lanka, of course. Uh, many uh, capitalist countries throughout the world are facing similar difficulties. At this point, not quite as acute. Nonetheless, there are predictions of... Uh, a recession here in the United States, um, even later in the summer. So the uh, Pan-African Newswire has been following the situation very closely in Sri Lanka uh, because uh, it portends much uh, for uh, the situation 
uh, in the international community as a whole. We'll take a break. We'll come back uh, with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe.
Fidel Castro and 500,000 Cubans took part in the African wars which ended colonialism. This little-known story began in the 1960s when Che Guevara fought in the Congo. His mission failed, but Cuba continued helping African revolutions. Amilcar Cabral's rebellion in Guinea-Bissau dealt a serious blow to the last colonial empire, but it was the scale of Fidel Castro's military involvement in Angola that would change the face of the continent. In 1974, the Carnation Revolution in Portugal brought down the dictatorship. Guinea-Bissau was the first colony to be granted independence, and Mozambique quickly followed. Angola was the empire's gem from where most of the colonial wealth had come. Ending colonial rule there was not going to be simple. Augustino Neto of the MPLA had since the early 60s firmly allied his movement with the Eastern Bloc. Like Lumumba and Amilcar, his struggle against colonialism had quickly won Cuban military support. La Unión Soviética tenía relaciones con el MPLA y por los contactos con la dirección del MPLA eh, veíamos que era un movimiento progresista y independentista de verdad. El pensamiento de Neto era socialista. Ahora, Neto era un hombre independiente. Nosotros somos socialistas también. The Angolan liberation struggle had been more complex from the start. Other than Neto's MPLA, Angola had two other rival anti-colonial movements. Holden Roberto's FNLA was based in the north of the country and received arms and training from the U.S., mainly via Mobutu in Zaire. Jonas Savimbi's UNITA was based in the south, and they too got American support which was mainly channeled through apartheid South Africa. Pour nous, ben, c'était les camps occidentaux, n'est-ce pas, qui avaient les mêmes idées que nous. Et de l'autre côté, il y avait l'UPLA, qui était carrément dans le camp marxiste-léniniste. Le communisme était l'opposé du christianisme. Eh bien, c'était clair, parce que si nous étions profondément chrétiens, je suis chrétien, ben, et la, la majorité de gens de Fénin étaient des chrétiens et des militants, ben, on ne peut pas être d'accord avec le communisme. The world was divided, West and East. Those who were supported by URSS, they were not welcomed by Americans. Therefore, vice versa. But the Angolans, to get weapons, to get diplomatic support, to get political support, they must join to one side. This brought a division among the Angolans. We were passing all the time, accusing each other and losing time keeping our fighting internal, not to fight against the colonies. Independence was within reach if only the three movements could
could agree to sit around the same table and decide the destiny of their country. After months of mediation efforts, the three delegations flew to the Portuguese town of Alvor to negotiate terms of independence. To go to Alvor, everyone was afraid. What will happen, what the Portuguese will do? Maybe we'll arrest somebody, we'll kill somebody. And when we arrive there, the leader, they don't want to eat, to touch anything to eat. They say, no, you are the young boys, you are the first to, be, to eat. When I will see one of the boys dying, I know that he's poisoned. Distrust was toward the Portuguese and distrust also among ourselves. We went to all of us to Penina Hotel. The first problem that occurred in Penina was the way the Portuguese put us. The ground floor was a place for the conference. The first floor was UNITA. The second floor was the FNLA. The third floor was Empelier. The last floor was the Portuguese. We didn't like this structure. People just thinking that there is a plotting, plotting, plotting. We think that during the night, maybe Empelier was negotiating with the Portuguese government. So many news were circulating, rumors. Hey, pa, my friend, you are sleeping. Oh, that they are negotiating. You know, this is a very bad atmosphere. The FNLA and UNITA feared that their local opponent, the MPLA, would be favored by the new leftist Portuguese regime. But it soon became obvious that the Marxist captains simply wanted to end the bloody chapter of colonial wars. For a week, they sat around the negotiating table, hammering out Angola's transition to independence. We said, first of all, when are we going to be independent? And the date of November 11th was proposed by Bouchionet. He said that uh, 11th of November was the Armistice Day, and we should be independent on that day. Let's be frank. The Three Liberation Movement participates for the struggle for independence. There is unanimity. But who will be the first president? There was not agreement. The Alvor Agreement vaguely outlined the transition, but the shaky deal did not provide a solid basis to overcome the years of mutual hatred. It needed no more than a spark to revive the fighting. The three leaders wanted to be heads of state before elections. They did not want to wait for November 11th. Each one brought its own army. On a commencé à apprendre que les fédérales étaient en train d'introduire des armes. Parce qu'ils voulaient, avant la, la programmation de l'indépendance, prendre une position. Alors, la décision qu'on a prise, c'est expulser les gens du FLNA et l'unité de Luanda. Each faction tried to gain control of the capital. Whoever held Luanda on the night of November 11th would be officially recognized by the outside world as the legitimate government of Angola. As the fighting intensified, the superpowers stepped in to fan the flames. This was no longer a civil war in the far corner of Africa. The crisis quickly turned into a full-blown superpower confrontation, where Angola was no more than the battlefield. 
this struggle in Africa broke out after Vietnam. The United States was highly sensitive at the time to the fact that it had been driven from the field in Vietnam and that our opponents, uh, namely Moscow, would take advantage of this period of American weakness or the perception of American weakness to secure geopolitical gains elsewhere. If the MPLA achieved power with its strong connections to the Cubans and to the Russians, you would see the first serious physical penetration of the East Bloc into African affairs. And we regarded that as a strategic threat. We provided arms and financing to hire uh, mercenaries, provide trainers, provide weaponry uh, to El Roberto's uh, armed elements. And through Mobutu, that equipment and funding was put before the uh, FNLA. Et après, ben, l'aide a augmenté. Et chacun devait aider ses alliés. C'est tout à fait normal. Les Soviétiques l'ont fait pour le MPLA. N'est-ce pas Les Américains ben, l'ont fait pour le Fénal d'Unita. Une opération américaine montée par le gouvernement américain. Officiellement. Il n'y avait aucun secret. Not only the Americans were keen to contain the possible Soviet influence in the region. To the south of Angola, Apartheid South Africa was eyeing developments with concern. Communism, as far as South Africa was concerned, was a real threat. A threat in the sense of dictating, taking over um, uh, the whole of the country. And we couldn't have that situation here in South Africa, that they could come through and instigate and uh, plant the uh, ideology of Marxism here in Southern Africa. And that meant... We're the next target. We're the cherry on the cake. The South African Defense Force decided to move into Angola. There, they immediately found natural allies in the local movements that had been chased out of Luanda by Neto's leftist MPLA. I one who received the generals from South Africa. And I remember the commander of the troops tell me clear. Who are you? I say, I am George Valentin, representative of UNITA. I don't know. You are not MPLA. No, I am UNITA. I'm sure, I'm, a, I'm afraid. I don't know. I didn't receive orders to find UNITA here. We came to defend FNLA and to fight against the communists and so on, to arrive in Luanda to put FNLA in power. But there is UNITA. They stopped to phone to Pretoria to ask what we can do with the troops of UNITA here. À l'époque, l'Afrique du Sud représentait l'horreur, l'apartheid, mais qu'est-ce que vous voulez Le cadre était différent et la, et la guerre avait dépassé ben, nos niveaux. Le conflit s'est internationalisé. Et entre deux mots, vous choisissez le moindre. Pour nous, à l'époque, c'était le moindre mal. Évidemment, c'était l'apartheid. Eh bien, on avait besoin de l'aide. Malgré nous, on acceptait ça. That phase was the phase of guns. 
and the money. You don't have guns and money, you don't have power. You can have dreams. You don't have, you, if you have no guns, you have no, no, no money, no politics. The scheduled date for independence was approaching fast. With U.S. logistical support, the FNLA troops, accompanied by soldiers from Mobutu's regular army, advanced from the north. UNITA soldiers, along with the South African army, moved up from the south. The MPLA, despite receiving consignments of Soviet weapons, suddenly found itself at a disadvantage. Y Angola lo que necesitaba era combatientes y armas allí, en ese momento. Cuando están los surafricanos avanzando, no, no se puede esperar el 11 de noviembre. Si esperamos el 11 de noviembre, llegan los surafricanos y llega eh, Mobuto a Luanda y no hay independencia. Y Neto, y se envió un mensaje al gobierno soviético, pero ya ellos no estaban dispuestos a hacer nada dentro de Angola hasta el 11 de noviembre. Pero nosotros sí estuvimos dispuestos temos aproveitado imenso da experiência da Revolução Cubana, sentido, por outro lado, uma solidariedade extraordinária do povo, um entusiasmo que não podemos medir. Quando nós decidimos pedir a Cuba uma ajuda, fizemos uma no pedido formal. Pois é, a mensagem chega de Fidel é muito maior. Então ultrapassa-nos. O nosso pedido é ultrapassado. É isso vocês vão ser esmagados. Não é só isso que vocês precisam. Quando se produz o 23 de outubro, la invasión de Angola por tropas regulares de África del Sur, no podíamos cruzarnos de brazos. Y cuando el MPLA solicitó nuestra ayuda, le ofrecimos la ayuda necesaria para impedir que el apartheid se instalara en Angola. Nos teníamos pedido pela um pacote de rebuçados. Eu disse, não, um pacote de rebuçados não, vocês precisam de 80 sacos de açúcar, eh, tantos litros de água, preciso uma misturadora, preciso... <risos> Eu trouxe um, um plano muito mais completo. E como não tem ainda cozinheiros, eu tenho cozinheiros aqui, eu posso mandar... <risos> This was not to be another covert operation like those Cuba had conducted in Africa throughout the 1960s. Fidel had decided to engage overtly in Angola. Cuba's elite special forces were dispatched along with 35,000 foot soldiers to help Neto's men. Operation Carlota guaranteed that Cuba would play a major role on the Angolan battlefield. Переброска кубинских войск в Африку застала нас совершенно врасплох. Мы ничего об этом не знали. Пришла телеграмма от посла нашего в Гвинее, что садятся самолеты с кубинскими значит, войсками на борту, солдатами. У нас схватили за голову. 
Просто было недовольство. Недовольство, что вот кубинцы действуют без не посоветовавшись и действуют неосторожно. Но вот мы консультируем эту ситуацию. Если мы делаем мобилизацию и отправляем grande cantidad de hombres para Angola. Eso no se puede hacer en secreto. Se puede mandar un 10 personas en secreto, se puede mandar 36.000 hombres en secreto. Es una operación abierta. Но я знаю некоторых членов руководства, которые, так сказать, наполовину возмущались. Ну как же они без спроса, понимаете, идут там авантюру. Ну вот, ну пришлось примириться. Что? Что делать? Никаких э, санкций мы не предпринимали в отношении Кубы. Они имели уже советское оружие. Уже имели. И мы, повторяю, если бы вот э, серьезно значит, возражать против этого, нам надо было с кубинцами поссориться. Куба была предпольем к Соединенным Штатам. У нас там были военные сооружения, важные для нас. Как стратегический пункт Куба была очень важна. Мы были worried about Cuban involvement because at that stage the talks about limitation of strategic weapons were taking place. There was talk about Brezhnev's visit to United States, which never take place, by the way, after this episode. My assumptions then were that the involvement of the Cubans was Russian-driven. It took me years later to reach a different conclusion, that the Cubans uh, played to bring the Russians in in support. Uh, that news reached Washington in the summer of 75, and I remember it was greeted with considerable concern. This is the first time foreign military forces had been introduced onto the continent of Africa since the colonial period back at the turn of the century. First time. We felt at that point that it was necessary to face this Cuban issue head on, square on. Cuba is a red flag in the United States because anything that Cuba does, we hate. So when they send troops to uh, Angola, We had no choice but to say this is the end of detente, even though the Soviets really were not responsible. To see Cubans operating anywhere outside of Cuba was something that we considered a defeat for the United States. Y por qué están irritados? Porque lo tenían todo planeado para apoderarse de Angola antes del 11 de noviembre. Angola es un territorio rico en recursos naturales. Cabinda tiene grandes recursos petroleros. Algunos imperialistas que preguntan ¿por qué ayudamos a los angoleños? ¿Que ¿Qué intereses tenemos nosotros allí? Ellos están acostumbrados a pensar que cuando un país hace algo es porque está buscando petróleo o cobre o diamante o algún recurso natural. No. Nosotros no buscamos ningún interés material y los imperialistas, es lógico, que no lo entiendan. Porque seguían por criterios exclusivamente chauvinistas, nacionalistas, egoístas. Estamos cumpliendo un elemental deber internacionalista cuando ayudamos al pueblo de Angola. 
All the pieces were in place for a final showdown. It was only a week to November 11th, and all the warring parties were converging on Luanda. It seemed that the new nation would be strangled at birth. The final clash took place at Kifongondo, only 30 miles from the capital. But the battle of Kifongondo was a battle decisive. Ben, on voulait à tout prix arriver à Luanda et c'est la vérité pour empêcher que le PLA proclame de façon unilatérale l'indépendance. Querions fazer uma sandwich, né? E foi difícil, foi. Mantivendo que muitas vezes não dormimos a pensar como é que íamos defender. Foi quando então a unidade assim, uma companhia que chegou aqui foi no dia anterior à batalha de Fangon. Chegou uma companhia do cubano. Isso lembro meu bem. Foi uma coisa surpresa, né? Não foi dizer que a gente sabia que iam chegar. Então ficamos satisfeitos quando soubemos que na retaguarda estava uma companhia de cubanos. E isto desde que os cubanos conseguiram desembarcar em Cabo do material de guerra que foi transportado a altas horas da, manhã, da noite, ou quase já de madrugada, via os tais órgãos de Stalin, os lança-foguetes de 40 canos. Quando os cubanos Começam com os canhão, com os morteiros e os órgãos de Stalin a fazer um, uma preparação de fogo incrível. A primeira foca que eles utilizaram, eles fizeram, os órgãos de Stalin, foi formidável, não foi manipulado pelos angolais. Quando eles nos bombardeiam com isso, nós homens que não estavam habituados, the MPLA won the decisive battle at Kifongondo, and on the night of November 11, 1975, 400 years of Portuguese colonialism ended. Augustino Neto was recognized as Angola's first president. Fidel tinha mandado uma caixa que era tudo tabaco coiba. E Neto que não fumava, e o presidente Neto manda pedir fósforos. E alguém trouxe o fósforo e ele acendeu um tabaco. É a primeira vez na vida que eu vi o presidente Neto dar uma bafurada. Quando toda a gente começou assim, a estranhar-se, a dizer, oh, Ele repara que estão todos a olhar para ele e dizem assim, <laughs> the fighting did not stop with the Declaration of Independence. The United States did not recognize Neto's presidency and was more adamant than ever to dislodge his Soviet-backed government. But the American Congress feared that they would get entangled in another Vietnam so they decided to prohibit all U.S. clandestine support to Angola. Once the U.S. supplies dried up, 
the MPLA managed to contain its local rivals. The South African army also withdrew from Angola, but it continued to arm and train Jonas Savimbi's UNITA rebels. Augustino Neto had won the first round of the battle for independence, so he invited Fidel Castro to celebrate the victory his army had helped win. Welcome back. And uh, that was excerpts uh, from uh, the history of uh, Angola in the overall African Revolution. Uh, the assistance of Cuban internationalist forces uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire, the Pan-African Journal uh, for this week. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at uh, Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with Phineas Newborn Jr. from the album entitled A World of Piano from 1962. This is Abayomi Azikwe signing off, and have a beautiful week.